Hi, welcome to the inaugural episode of Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now and a freelance journalist for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. Joining me today for our inaugural episode is Frankie Thomas. Frankie, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Frankie Thomas. I am a 34-year-old writer living in New York City. I am shopping around a novel about friendship and being (laughs) gay. (laughs) And I'm gay and it's pretty cool. And I have always loved little women ever since I was in the second grade. And this is a special interest that I share with Peyton and a major foundation of our friendship. We just came from a pilgrimage of sorts, a spiritual retreat, if you will, to Concord, Massachusetts, initially to West Concord, Massachusetts, due to a train mishap, visited Orchard House, visited the Concord Free Public Library to examine some manuscript pages. I've just spent a month in Boston and Concord patrolling the archives of Louisa May Alcott for gay evidence, basically. So that's the foundation that we come to you now with. Hi, Frankie. So I was going to suggest that we just put it all out there, the raison d'etre of this podcast, yes. our big theory, our big theory about Louisa May Alcott. Yeah. Our bit, was it a theory or is it a fact? Is it knowledge? Is it proven? That's such a classic Peyton Thomas thing to say. You've convinced me, but let's start okay. out by presenting it as a theory and then convince the listeners with evidence. This is called Joe's Boys, and we are both trans men. And having, again, just spent a month elbow deep in the Louisa May Alcott archives, it is pretty clear to me from examining the historical record that Louisa May Alcott had some gender stuff going on. And it's ironic that the author of Little Women, whose you know best known work is seen as sort of so emblematic of what it means to be a girl and a young woman, <laughs> was basically banging on the walls of her cage, hollering, get me out of here, every moment of her waking existence. The version of the Louisa May Alcott quote that gets passed around the internet is, I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body, dot, 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 because I have fallen in love in my life with so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man. I immediately had to track it down just to find out what that dot, dot, dot was eliding. Yeah, it's a fairly significant place for a dot, dot, dot to be. So Frankie hunted it down and found the original interview. It was conducted in 1884 with a woman named Louise Chandler Moulton when Louise May Alcott was 52 years old. It was for a book about famous women. So she was basically being profiled in this book. The context is it's a profile, basically. It's like a magazine profile. This writer is following Louise May Alcott around her house and doing a day in the life of Louisa May Alcott. So she's sitting there with her face to face and they're talking about all kinds of stuff. That's imagine any magazine profile. That's the context here. And it says, I have often thought, she said, that I may have been a horse before I was Louisa Alcott. As a long limbed child, I had all a horse's delight in racing through the fields and tossing my head to sniff the morning air. Now I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body, period. Okay. And then Louise Chandler Moulton, who's the profiler, asks, why do you think that? I asked in the spirit of Boswell addressing Dr. Dodson. And then Louisa says, well, for one thing, and the blue gray eyes sparkled with laughter. That's the part about the blue gray eyes is Louise's interjection. It's a little bit of narrative color. Yes. Louisa May Alcott answers, well, for one thing, and her blue gray eyes sparkle with laughter, because I have fallen in love in my life with so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man. So never once the least little bit. That's actually not true. She like definitely had boy toys. I'm guessing after Louisa May Alcott said that they just started scissoring. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what a line, right? What a line. What a line. That she may actually have been coming on to Louise. (laughs) We haven't considered that. We have Um, not considered that. Before we go too far down that rabbit hole, let's uh, want to take a moment to just unpack what this quote means to us, or we could just let it sit by itself. I I think we need to, to, you know, get some suitcases out and unpack some stuff. The expansion there and figuring out what's behind that dot, dot, dot is important because the quote with the dot, it can make it sound like, Louisa May Alcott is saying, well, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body because I just love women so much. And expanding the quote into its original context shows us that she said, I think I'm a man in a woman's body, period, full stop, full 
like complete thought. And when she was asked why, she says, well, for one thing, among many other reasons, I have been in love with ever so many pretty women and never once leased it with any man. Yeah, I do think it's crucial that the I've been in love with so many women was in response to a question. It was not part of the original thought. There's a lot of arguments in the internet about was Louisa May Alcott a trans man? Was she a lesbian? And I hate to break it to you, but trans men can be attracted to women. And that was probably the vibe. We will get into this throughout the run of this podcast, I'm sure. And in this episode specifically, because we will be discussing the first chapter of Little Women which is basically just Joe running rampant through the house, knocking over furniture, hollering, I want to be a boy, every other line, (laughs) throughout Louisa May Alcott's life, from when she was a child to like when she was on her deathbed. She would write in journals, in letters, in casual correspondence with friends and family. I want to be a man. I want to be a boy. It's not subtle. You really, you have to work really hard to construe any other meaning from that. So Part of our mission here at Joe's Boys Incorporated (laughs) is to illuminate some of the record around that, specifically looking at queer and trans readings of Little Women and Louisa May Alcott's work, getting into the archives of Louisa May Alcott and the Alcott family. We have a great bottle episode in the works about May Alcott, who was the real Amy, May Alcott's hot girl summer. (laughs) So you have a lot to look forward to, but no, that is the raison d'etre of Joe's boys. Frankie, do you have anything you want to add? Yes. One thing I would like to add is I understand that when you assert that a historical figure was transmasculine in particular, the onus is really on you to demonstrate how this is distinct from the fact that being a woman in the olden days simply sucked. It continues to suck in many ways now, but To be sure, history is very full of women who are probably having a very bad time. And I, at least, do not pretend to have the key to distinguishing between women who were having a bad time and women who were perhaps not women at all. And I think that is that is something that I look forward to getting into in all episodes of this podcast. What it comes down to for me is sometimes I simply get a vibe and both Peyton and I get a very, very strong vibe from Lou Alcott, as Lou called themselves in all of their correspondence. Yeah. Insisted upon being called. And we will focus on the many, many, many little moments that give us that vibe. And listeners, you can draw your own conclusion, but I think it's very interesting. And what better place to start than chapter one of Little Women, as you will soon see. Yes, absolutely. And if you're a turf and you're going to leave a one-star Apple review that's like, this is misogynistic, Louisa May Alcott was a woman... Peyton, why are you talking to TERFs? I don't care what TERFs think of us. I'm tempted to be like, just fuck right off. But I'm not speaking to you, TERFs. Get out of here. You're not invited. I'm going to hold the door open and be like, sit down. Listen, I just spent a month at the Harvard archive of Louisa May Alcott's entire family. I objectively know more than you do, and maybe you'll learn something. So that's my message to any violent trans folks listening right now. All right. We're going to be going through chapter by chapter, occasionally taking breaks to talk about a movie, perhaps a Little Women adaptation that we've both read, perhaps May Alcott's Hot Girl Summer, perhaps Timothy Chalamet. Perhaps and, Timothy Chalamet, who knows? You know? <laughs> Timothy Chalamet, because I'm really, Frankie, I don't know if I've told you how bad it's gotten. I'm, liter- I'm literally at the point now where I'll just go to YouTube and type in Timothy Chalamet speaking French. <laughs> I don't speak French. I just love to sit and watch him talk in you don't French. Speak French. You don't speak French? What kind of Canadian are you? I, I you speak uh, French. You speak a little French. Un petit peu, mais je ne comprends tout que Timothée dit durant los videos. And that was Spanish. So let's just <laughs> stop right there. Chapter one, playing pilgrims. Frankie. <laughs> recap this chapter tell us what goes down sure i mean probably if you're listening to this podcast i don't really need to remind you what happens in (laughs) chapter one of little women this is i think probably the one part of the novel that gets reproduced verbatim in every adaptation ever it's so i like to use the word iconic it's so overused but if anything in literature is iconic it is chapter one playing pilgrims 
I mean, I can, I don't even have it in front of me. I will in a minute, but just to prove the point, I can recall that the very first line of it is Christmas won't be Christmas without presents, grumbled Joe. Oh shit, lying by the fire. Is that what she's doing? She's definitely grumbling. I think it's without any presents. There's no presents. There's exactly zero presents. With no presents. She's grumbling. She's lying on the rug. Oh, I was. She was lying on the rug. Okay, so it begins with all four sisters picturesquely arranged before the crackling fire doing their housework. Some of them are sewing and mending. I think they all are, maybe. And they are just in exposition Latin dialogue talking about how they are sad that they can't afford Christmas presents this year because father lost all their money. Someone passive aggressively establishes many years ago and they are, and father is now away in the war bringing in no money and they are poor. And in the course of this conversation, we learn all the basics about the four March sisters, their looks, their personalities, their interests, their hobbies, what they want, what their relationships are to each other. And then enter Marmy, their mother. And she comes bearing a letter from the war from father, which she reads aloud to them. And they are all humbled and chastened by what a good example he sets for them. And they resolve to work hard, work harder to be better versions of themselves. And in so doing, they decide to play a game the following day where they reenact everyone's favorite book, Pilgrim's Progress. Like, who could forget what a great, (laughs) unforgotten book that is? And chapter one closes on the excitement of the four March sisters as they look forward to what's going to be the event of their year of reenacting the events of their favorite book, Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, also, they resolve secretly to buy presents for their mom, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's give a little bit of money. After establishing that they have no money, Louisa May Alcott then decides that's too narratively limiting. They have (laughs) no money to buy cute presents for their mom. Yeah. They have a dollar each, which is not enough to send away to the soldiers, which I don't know. I don't have the conversion rate in my head, but it seems- Sounds like a lot to me. It's four, four bucks in 1860 money. I think they could have bought a hot meal for a soldier. I'm just going <laughs> to put that out there. So, I mean, God, let's start with Dad March, the off-screen player, actually, which is a weird place to start. We learn that he has lost all his money and also that he's too old to fight in the Civil War. But he's going anyway <laughs> to be a chaplain to preach on the front lines of the Civil War and leave his, his now, Without getting too deep into the biographical context of the novel, I'm sure we could spend an entire episode on this. But just for listeners at home, it is so important to understand what a deep wish fulfillment fantasy this must have been for Louisa May Alcott. <laughs> who had a shitty dad who also lost all the family's money. But unlike Mr. March, he did not have the good manners to go fuck off and fight in the war. He in the war. He was so, so constant a presence in Lou's life that Lou went off to fight in the war. That's right. Yeah, it's important to understand the real dad Alcott, Bronson Alcott, never fought in the Civil War. Louisa May Alcott was the family member who went to fight in the Civil War. And by by fight, I mean, was a nurse in a Civil War hospital and got Civil War hospital fever, which they treated with mercury, (laughs) which left her actually permanently disabled till the end of her days and in terrible chronic pain that she treated with opium because medicine was very advanced in the 1860s. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Bronson Alcott, what a character. I mean... Among his famous business ventures, failed business ventures, rather, vegan commune. There's so much to learn about Bronson Alcott. But for our purposes, I think what matters is he was an overwhelmingly controlling presence in the lives of his wife and daughters. And this makes it very funny to know that in when she had the freedom to imagine an entire fictional version of her life, the first thing she did was get rid of dad. Get rid of dad and also give the dad character her own military service. She's like, Joe is my self-insert, but the other male character is also going to be my self-insert. Do you want to just jump right into cataloging all of the trans moments in chapter one? Oh my God. Oh boy. (laughs) Do I? I was writing them down. You made a little list. Yeah. So first off, the first gender thing in this book is that Joe examines her shoes in a gentlemanly manner. 
And my annotated edition of Little Women, which is the size of a house, it's so, you could brain someone with it. It's huge. Edited by John Madison, shout out to John Madison. Notes that this is the first reference to Joe's androgyny in the whole book. God, that's one way to put it. John Madison says, Joe's gentlemanly examination of her boots is the first firm indicator of Joe's ambiguous gender identification. Oh, okay. (laughs) Ambiguous gender identification. This is such a classic, perfect illustration of how scholars see it and they simply refuse to call it like it is. They will use euphemisms. They will water it down into something okay. slightly less less real than it is. The okay. word gentlemanly, I'm sorry, gentlemanly is not ambiguous. Okay. How does one examine the heels of one's shoes in a gentlemanly manner? You know, you joke, but you can picture it, can't you? I can picture it too. I guess. Like, was it just Louise Amalco? I was like, I will pepper in the fact that Joe is trans. <laughs> just sprawled on the rug in a gentlemanly manner. <laughs> No, I mean, you know what I think it is? I think it's just the yeah. fact that she swung her leg up with her foot in her face. Oh, and yeah. There's this YouTuber who I actually really enjoy, but she has this video about the costumes of Little Women that makes me insane in the Greta Gerwig Little Women. Because there's a scene where Joe is running down a street and lifts up her skirts so that she can run faster and you can like kind of see her pantaloons underneath. <laughs> and this YouTuber was like, that's insane. That's the equivalent of dropping your top in a CVS. But... <laughs> Right, which none of us have ever done. None of I certainly have never flashed anyone in the CVS. Phoebe Bridgers has, but that's beside the point. Definitely flashed people in a CVS. Have you? Oh, probably. <laughs> you know me, I cannot keep my shirt on. I'm not wearing a shirt right now. <laughs> okay. This is a family podcast. Anyway, I guess gentlemanly manner is you can see my pantaloons and I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Second, trans evidence. So I'm going to read the full context of this one. It's a slow build argument between Joe and Amy. It's a lot of fun. Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Meg says, for though we do have to work, we make fun of ourselves and are a pretty jolly set, as Joe would say. Joe does use such slang words, observed Amy, with a reproving look at the long figure stretched on the rug. Joe immediately sat up, put her hands in her pockets, and began to whistle. Don't, Joe. It's so boyish. That's why I do it. I detest rude, unladylike girls. I hate affected nimini-pimini chits. Birds in their little nests agree, sang Beth, the peacemaker. <laughs> wow. So I, lots to unpack here. I want to say, first of all, Catherine Hepburn eats this scene alive in the movie, which if you haven't seen the 1933 Little Women, I mean, run, don't walk. It's a real treat. She really, really relishes examining the heels of her yeah. shoes in a gentlemanly manner. She gets that energy better than any other actress who has ever played yeah. Joe. She tells Amy, I hate affected nimini pimini chits. And you're like, it, it sounds like words that a real human being would say, which is impossible. I, it's really something. You know, I might as well read on because the next boy moment is actually the next line. And so these yep. are like, all moments. right. This is all the same sequence. So Amy and Joe are squabbling and Beth tries to calm everyone down. And then Meg pulls rank and begins to lecture both of them and says... Really, girls, you are both to be blamed, said Meg, beginning to lecture in her elder sisterly fashion. You are old enough to leave off boyish tricks and to behave better, Josephine. It didn't matter so much when you were a little girl, but now you are so tall and turn up your hair. You should remember that you are a young lady. Joe replies, I'm not. And if turning up my hair makes me one, I'll wear it in two tails till I'm 20, cried Joe, pulling off her net and shaking down a chestnut mane. I hate to think I've got to grow up and be Miss March and wear long gowns and look as prim as a china aster. It's bad enough to be a girl anyway when I like boys' games and work and manners. I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy. And it's worse than ever now, for I'm dying to go and fight with Papa, and I can only stay home and knit like a pokey old woman. I mean, keep going. Or should we stop here and just... You know, I could keep going because it keeps going. It continues. It does keep going. Yeah, keep going. (laughs) So, and Joe shook the blue army sock. She is, she's knitting a sock. And Joe shook the blue army sock till the needles rattled like castanets and her ball, her yarn ball, bounded across the room. And then Beth interjects, poor Joe, it's too bad, but it can't be helped. So you must try to be contented with making your name boyish and playing brother to us girls, said Beth stroking the rough head with a hand that all the dishwashing and dusting in the world could not make gentle in its touch. 
Beth refers to Joe as a tomboy. It's Beth who says that, which I think is interesting because Beth doesn't seem to mind. Beth is pretty much like, listen, we can't get you to Callum Lord right now, <laughs> but let's all just do our best. <laughs> we'll call you Joe. You're our brother. Oh my God. What I always found, even as a kid, I always found that moment so piercing because what mm. Beth is doing is validating Joe's pain. And saying, Beth, I, Beth is saying, Joe, I understand. I see how much you want this. And I acknowledge that it is sad that you can't have this. Here is a consolation, but I am not minimizing how much this hurts for you. I think that's, yeah, that's our first real character introduction to Beth. It's lovely. Yeah, we stand best in this house. I think it's worth noting this pretty much was the general attitude of Lou Elcott's family. They had obviously no concept of transness. They did not have the word transgender in 1860. But Lou, during her lifetime, was very, very frank about feeling like a man's soul trapped in a woman's body. And her family pretty much agreed. They understood that this was Lou's deal. They always called her Lou. They called her Louie, even in private. I was at Harvard last month looking through the Alcott family's archives, and there's a ledger by May Alcott, who's the real life Amy. And she would just write in private where no one ever see it. Like, I just got a hundred bucks from Lou. It was absolutely just something that they all understood about Lou. Bronson Alcott talks about how, you know, the day that Lou goes off to serve in the Civil War, he says, my only son has gone off to war. Later on in her life, when one of her sisters passes away and leaves surviving children behind, Lou writes in her diary, I must be a father to these children. (laughs) Everyone pretty much got it that this was her deal and it was not a sin or something that she felt she had to correct about herself. It was just quirky Lou (laughs) is a man trapped in a woman's body. And we all understand that's the deal. God, I have so many thoughts about this. For one thing, it is interesting that within Little Women, it is presented as something that Joe needs to correct about herself. That is, it Mm. is presented by Meg as something that Joe needs to correct about herself, not necessarily by the novel. And I think as we go through the novel in future episodes, I think it is a theme throughout the novel that the characters will insist on values that the narrator of the novel does not seem to share. And I think this is a good example of that. But you're also making me think about perhaps this is a source of the vibe that we get. And one possible answer to the question of how do you distinguish the misery of being a woman in a patriarchal society, New England in 1860? How do you distinguish that very reasonable pain from what we specifically perceive as a dysphoric type of pain? And this is perhaps a little reductive, but I think so much of it comes down to the fact that the accoutrements of manhood are enough to relieve that pain for Joe. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not just that she wants to go off and fight in the war, which was maybe a widely shared desire by many women back then who were passionate about issues, but that she wants to be called Joe, and it gives her comfort for her sisters to call her Joe. To call her Joe and to call her brother and to understand that she's in a brotherly role. She's the man of the house. It means something to her to be able to play that part in the family. And that being called Miss March, not even Mrs. It's not even the, not even the idea of being married that is upsetting her in that speech, but just being called Miss March is so painful to her. Or looking feminine. Or, you know, when Meg's like, you look pretty, you know, ladylike with your hair up like that. She's like, ah, <laughs> really shakes it out. <laughs> and, you know, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think in the Catherine Hepburn movie, she takes down her hair in that moment and never puts it up again. That's, yeah, that's a... Very good point. We're going to get into the Catherine Hepburn of it all at some point. There's a lot to unpack there. The trailer for the Catherine Hepburn of it all is that Catherine Hepburn playing Joe March's own voices, hashtag own voices. (laughs) (laughs) Never use that phrase again. I never will. We can argue till the cows come home was Louisa May Alcott trans. And the fact is that we will never know because she's not with us and the word transgender didn't exist when she was alive. I think that's not as productive as looking at what it means to transition as a series of verbs. And so the way I'm going to define transition is anything you do to make that nebulous inner understanding of your gender line up with the self you present to the outside world. Do you think that's fair, Frankie? Sure. Yeah. Okay. And so in this chapter alone, in this opening chapter, we learn that Joe has already taken what I think are some important steps in 
a transition. Her name, she's not Josephine, she's Joe. Her dress, you know, she's examining her boots, her shoes, pardon me, in a gentlemanly manner. Her appearance, her long, thick hair is her one beauty, but it's usually bundled up in a net to be out of her way. When Meg points out that this might be read as ladylike, she takes it right down. Her behavior is gentlemanly and boyish. Her role in her family is that of a brother or a son or the man of the house. Like she has transitioned in meaningful ways. You know, she's not lining up at Cal and Lord, but socially, you know, relationship wise, she has transitioned. I think that's worth talking about. How do you feel about that? such an interesting take. I have to think about whether I see it the same way. Like I, I love your logic there. And now it's making me wonder, is this the standard to which we should hold trans readings for fictional characters? What do we do about the ones who have not taken any steps to transition, but just have a feeling? Certainly there are characters in literature who are eggs. You know, you do, you get that vibe, but the shell hasn't quite cracked yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I enjoy that distinction that Joe is not a literary egg. Joe is a literary trans child. Joe is a literary bantam rooster. (laughs) Joe is out of the egg. Call me Joe. I'm your son. I'm your brother. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to whistle boyishly and examine my boots in a gentlemanly manner and scream every two lines about how I want to be a boy. I can't get over my disappointment in being a girl. And, you know, getting back to what you said about how do we distinguish, you know, a woman who was alive in the 1860s, which was a historically not great time to be a woman with someone who was struggling with gender dysphoria and maybe perceived as transgender. And I think it's important to note, you know, we're looking at a scene of four women and only one of those women is hollering about wanting to be a boy. This like, is not, very true. I think yes, this might yes. be the key to all of it, that yeah. there are four little women and uh, <laughs> only one of them is just every other yeah, line yeah. insisting on her disappointment at not yeah. having been born a boy. Yeah. And we have a pretty clear idea of throughout the book, even in this chapter of how gender is working against these girls and how their possibilities are limited by the fact that they're having been born girls in this time. And yet... The only one to just holler about wanting to be a man is Joe. It's not like Amy is going, oh, I want to be a boy so I can go off to Paris and be a painter. <laughs> Amy could not, oh my God, Amy could not want anything less than being a boy. <laughs> and Meg is not like, oh, I want to be a man so that I can have a, I don't know, a, a, a big family and sire a bunch of children, whatever. You know, like it's not, that's not it. It's, <laughs> Joe specifically. Although that is a very funny image. Joe, Meg wanting to. <laughs> Meg wants a harem. Uh, Meg wants a harem. Meg wants to breed. She does. Actually, can we? This is a bit of a sidetrack, but since we're talking about Meg and breeding, I was struck. <laughs> wow, bad transition. I was struck by Meg in this chapter saying she's talking about how she's been tutoring some kids. And she's saying, oh, I hate teaching those tiresome children all day when I'm longing to enjoy myself at home. And later on in the book, we'll understand that Meg's greatest aspiration in life and ultimate fulfillment is being a mother when he or she says, I hate those tiresome children. I just want to enjoy myself at home. So that stuck out to me on this read. That's super interesting. That is consistent Hmm. with that chapter, that chapter. I think it's Little Faithful. And I talk about this all the time. I've talked about it to you. That moment where we learn that Joe loves nursing Beth when she's sick and Meg actually hates it. She can't stand nursing. I think we can say Meg is one of those aspiring mothers who loves babies, but not kids so much. Yeah. I I mean, that tracks as far as just, yes, I'm going to marry John Brooke. I'm going to do it right now. We're going to have twins. And then we fast forward to two years in the Greta Gerwig movie. And she's just like... Get me out of here. Well, okay. Also, to be wholly fair to Meg, she was not planning to have twins. That was a big surprise. Oh, yeah. That's that's not in the card. It was not in the vision board for Meg to have twins. God, sorry. Imagine having twins in 1860. Imagine being pregnant in 1860. Yes, I think about this all the time. And it is so horrifying that I can't bear to think about it for very long. Yeah. So Meg has a tall order. But again, yeah, Meg is not like, I want to be a man, so I don't have to have kids, <laughs> right? <sighs> Joe really, really sincerely wants to be a boy, and that's that, and that's on period. Do you have we- more boy moments on your list? I literally do. Do you want to just read from 15-year-old Joe? Sure. Yeah. Oh, here it is. I love 
on this paragraph, yeah. by the way, because yeah. it is written so sure. grudgingly the way yeah. that Lou begins yeah. saying, as young readers like to know, quote, how people look, unquote, we will take this moment to give them a little sketch of the four sisters. <laughs> like she's so, she, she doth protest too much. She's having a great time writing this book, but every now and then she feels dysphoric about the fact that she's writing a girl's novel called Little Women and has to be like, I hate this, actually. It bears mentioning Lou didn't want to write this book. She didn't enjoy writing this book. It was pretty much her publisher was like, do you want to write a children's book for girls? And she was like, I hate girls, but I'll do anything for a paycheck. So sure. Or so the story goes. However, I just think the quality of the writing is the quality of a writer who's having a pretty good time inhabiting her universe and making up her characters, which is why I think these little doff protest two moments, doff protest too much moments are pretty funny when she suddenly remembers that. She should be off writing this <laughs> All right. Anyway, so we have now the character sketch of the four girls, and I will skip to Joe. 15-year-old Joe was very tall, thin, and brown, and reminded one of a colt, for she never seemed to know what to do with her long limbs, which were very much in her way. She had a decided mouth, a comical nose, and sharp gray eyes, which appeared to see everything and were by turns fierce, funny, or thoughtful. Her long, thick hair was her one beauty, but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of her way. Round shoulders had Joe, big hands and feet, a flyaway look to her clothes, and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it. Joe, we will get you to Callan Lord on God. <laughs> to me, the most piercing thing about that line is the uncomfortable look. We all know that uncomfortable look. We know what that look looks like. The uncomfortable look of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it. Yeah, I can see her. I can see her right in front of me right now. Yeah. In my notes, I wrote trans, transgender next to that line. But as much as that is highly relevant, and for anyone listening, if you also have the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who's rapidly shooting up into a woman and you don't like it, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you should talk to, I don't know, the Trevor Project about that or something. (laughs) You have options. I want to also highlight that she had big hands and feet, which is, that's mask for sure. Oh, to have big hands and feet. The comical nose is also masked. There's sort of a... Oh to, be, oh, to be tall. To be tall and have long limbs and big hands and feet. No, was Lou Alcott tall in real life? I don't actually know. That'd be fun to look into. Yeah. I wonder if she's giving Joe the body that she wishes she had. That's very sweet and sad, if true. I feel like I should know that. I do know that Lou had a darker complexion and darker hair than her any of her sisters. And there's some uncomfortable racial stuff here because we learn that Meg has white hands of which she is rather vain. And Amy is a regular snow maiden with yellow hair curling on her shoulders, pale and slender. And Joe, who is boyish and unfeminine, is brown. <laughs> and- yes, too. Even Beth is described as rosy, I believe. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. I, the Alcotts were, I mean, fervent abolitionists. Lou taught people escaping from slavery to read and write when they came to stay at her house, which was a spot on the Underground Railroad. Fun fact, all of the Alcott's were involved in anti-slavery efforts. But, you know, this uncomfortable sort of denigration of darker complexions does creep in from time to time. I think it's worth calling attention to. Man, okay, boy moment. Well, I don't know. Is her brown complexion being denigrated? I would not necessarily argue that it is. I think this is a pretty neutral physical okay. description of Joe. So it's kind of one more thing that's like, she was so unfeminine, unfeminine because... Yeah, sure. yeah um, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Well, next up, we have Joe saying, I'd like to try Macbeth. I always wanted to do the killing part. Is that a dagger I see before me? Muttered Joe, rolling her eyes and clutching at the air. She had seen a famous tragedian do. We don't have tragedians anymore. We should bring those back. We should have Netflix yeah. tragedy. Netflix stand-up tragedy. Stand-up tragedy. That's oh, you know what? That's that's fucking Nanette. That's what Nanette was. <laughs> Nanette is stand-up tragedy. Dave Chappelle is doing stand-up tragedy. He's a terrible tragedian, though. John Mulaney's life is stand-up tragedy. <laughs> you're good, Peyton. Okay, that you're good. good. Thank you. Anyway, Joe's like, I'd like to try Macbeth. Does anyone think global warming is a good thing? I think Lady Gaga's a really interesting. <laughs> So Joe likes to write plays that her 
she and her sisters put on. And it strikes me, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but a little glimpse at the play as they're rehearsing. And we hear about a Don Pedro, a Roderigo, and a Hugo. So she's a girl with three sisters. And she's like, okay, (laughs) we're going to be Don Pedro, Roderigo, and Hugo. (laughs) By the way, yet another moment that Catherine Hepburn absolutely kills in the movie. Oh my God. It's having the best time playing the boy part in the play. Isn't she always? I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's her whole deal, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we went to Orchard House, which is one of the residences of Louisa May Alcott. I say one of because Bronson Alcott was a total deadbeat and moved them around 30 times. We hear there are some tidbits in the Alcott children's journals growing up, they're like, I hate my house. I hate my street. It's dirty. It's scary. I don't like it. So they, I mean, like, I cannot emphasize enough. They lived in extreme poverty, but they wound up at Orchard House, which was kind of a ramshackle place that Bronson Alcott fixed up. And we went to Orchard House. We went to Orchard House in Concord. We had a tour and I was very struck to see the boots that Louisa May Alcott made for herself for these theatrical performances. It was like, oh yes, they were beautiful boots. They were buskins, yeah. I believe. They were like deerskin. Yeah, they were, I mean, just gorgeous boots. If thinking of Louise May Alcott laboring over these boots to look a little bit more mask in her play about Roderigo and Don Pedro and Hugo and mask adventures. I think this is also, it's <laughs> Joe March says, I'm a girl quotation marks with three sisters and we're going to all be playing men in my play (laughs) because I'm Uh, the boss. (laughs) And we will have so many other wonderful little moments of joy of Joe just seizing the opportunity to play boys. Oh my God. Remember in the Lou Sullivan diaries when Lou remembered how as a kid, he had this game called playing boys where he would just get his sisters and his friends at school to play boys. And the game was wow. boys, and we come up with boy names for ourselves. That's Joe true. does that's, that a lot. That's literally exactly what Joe what Joe is doing here. I think it's also highly relevant. Marmy comes home. Mommy comes home. I'm gonna. We have Mom. a theory that's just the Boston accent, which I didn't think Boston accents were real. And then I went and got a COVID test at a Cambridge, Massachusetts COVID testing site, staffed entirely by Boston firefighters. And I realized it's no joke because every single one of them was like, "Hey, so head upstairs." And, Get to vaccine. I was like, holy shit. Um, anyway. All American regional accents are real. I'm so excited yes. to take you to other places. So <laughs> mommy comes home and they set about doing some chores. Meg arranged the tea table. Beth trotted to and fro between parlor and kitchen. Amy gave directions and Joe brought wood. Joe was like, I'm going to do the most mask chore. I'm going to bring the wood in. I'm chopping wood. I'm dropping, overturning, and clattering everything she touched. That's Joe. All right. So that's a moment. And then another moment, they're reading a letter from Dad March. And she says, don't I wish I could go as a drummer, a Vivan, what's its name, or a nurse, so I could be near him and help him, exclaimed Joe with a groan. And I think it's worth noting here that, and then hat tip to John Madison for pointing this out. She's not talking about being like a little drummer boy in the Civil War, although that would be like mad cute. But a Vivan- No, she's talking, she's using drummer in the sense of someone who sells things like drums up. Really? Yeah. Or Vivandier, a female vendor who sells things to soldiers. Wow. Yeah. This is news to me. Thank you for that fun fact. Yeah. Because a modern reader, you definitely see drummer and think, oh, she she wants to like be leading the Union Army with her little rat-a-tat. But no, one of the roles that women could play in the Civil War would be the person who sits in the tent and like sells people socks. This is not a boy moment for Joe. Exactly. I mean, it is, but not not quite as much as I thought. Yeah, she's saying, I want to go in the war and help in whatever capacity women are allowed to help. I think that's valid. I see this as a mannish moment. I want someone to write the novel where Joe literally says, okay, I'm just going to skip out of the plot of Little Women real quick and go find my breasts and, and go fight in the Civil War. There were people who did that. There were real people. Albert Cashier, we stand. Yeah, who's going who's gonna to be brave enough to write the fic where Joe just departs little women at this point and the story continues without her and she assumes the role of a boy and fights in the Civil War? Who will do that? Who will take up that burden? Only you'd made the suggestion to Lou. I bet she would have written it. I bet. I, if I'd made that suggestion to Lou, Lou would have done it. 
Yeah. <laughs> Good point. And then we would have no little women at all. And then we would have no little, or maybe we would, or it would look different. Who can say? All right. Next Joe moment is that she leans on. Okay. So mommy is le- reading this letter from dad March and Joe leans on the back of the chair where no one will see any sign of emotion. If the letter should happen to be touching because tears throughout little women are said to be unmanful. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's problematic. (laughs) It's certainly her perception of that tears are unmanful and managing your emotions is manful. And Joe is trying to bear this burden manfully. Manful is a word that appears weirdly a lot in little women for a bit. I love that word. I think we should bring that word back. Yeah. Manful. And we have a final, I was going to say we have a final boy moment, but we really have so many. I bet it's not even the final boy moment in this chapter. No, the dad sends them a letter and is like, oh, my little women, Bob Odenkirk voice. And then Joe says, I'll try and be what he loves to call me, a little woman, and not be rough and wild, but do my duty here instead of wanting to be somewhere else, said Joe, thinking that keeping her temper at home was a much harder task than facing a rebel or two down south. (laughs) So even as she says it, there's the thought bubble popping up of her bayonetting confederate soldiers which i which is a fun thought you know i think we can all agree your thoughts frankie i think this is another good example of the novel's characters insisting on values that the novel's narrator does not seem to share yes yeah i even as the characters are insisting on the correct values that they want to follow we can just see evidence in the way that the author has chosen to write about it that maybe there is a little more complexity of desire on the author's part. Yeah. And I mean, Joe right now is in like a very good Greta Gerwig mumblecore family film. And she wants to be in Django Unchained. (laughs) And I think she is so valid (laughs) for that. And I would like to see, I would like to see what Quentin Tarantino could do with Little Women. I think he could really bring them. Oh my God. Don't give him ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see the Maya Hawk Little Women? Did you ever watch? No. That? Okay, because it opens no, opens in the Civil War in the tent with Dad Marsh being shot at. They were like, "That's the so establishing shot." The yeah, Little Women for Men. Little Women for Men. Not to be confused with Little Men. We haven't. Neither of us have read Little Men. We don't know what it's about. <laughs> it's not about Joe's sons. It's just about random boys. Who are little. I mean, little. I can only imagine how little they are. I don't know. So my takeaway from this, Joe's like, all right, I'll try to be a little woman instead of just murdering Confederates. Is it murder if they deserve to be murdered because they're defending slavery in an an ethical war? Who can say? I think the difficult thing here is that setting up Joe's arc for the whole book, which is her finding a way to be comfortable with having to be a woman. She's like, I don't know. I mean, this is my body and my life and I have to live in it. So I'll do my best. But it's this constant tension. And I don't know if Louisa May Alcott ever really resolves it. Obviously, I don't know that she could in her own life. And she doesn't seem to be able to do it for Joe either. So it's bittersweet. It's sad. It's sad. You know, I love the way you put that just now. And I think you might have hit on one reason this novel is still so beloved and still so widely read and so deeply meaningful to people is the way that the the way that Joe's arc is so unresolved and so consistent for the whole book and how what Joe is supposed to want is so in tension with what Joe actually does seem to want in her heart. I love that. That's I mean, I think that's the place of the whole of the whole novel right there and perhaps of our podcast. Yeah, and probably why it, you know, little women just keeps being adapted endlessly because everyone looks at this novel and looks at Joe and goes, I can fix her. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Truer words were never spoken. I swear we have more to talk about than just Joe is trans and the government knows it. But Joe says, we ought to have our role of directions. Like Christian from Pilgrim's Progress. What shall we do about that? Asked Joe, delighted with the fancy, which lent a little romance to the very dull task of doing her duty, which as you know, how I'm going to cope with doing my chores by pretending to be a male character. Uh, Who among us has not coped that way? (laughs) Joe certainly is leaning into it early on. She says, oh, what fun it was, especially going by the lions, fighting Apollyon and passing through the valley where the hobgoblins were. Joe is like, okay, I can't go to war, but I can pretend to be a boy 
and pretend that I'm going to war and fighting lions and hobgoblins. Just as a side note, I have no idea what Pilgrim's Progress is about. Frankie has the good fortune to be Jewish and I was raised evangelical. So I'm passingly familiar. There was a vacation Bible school that I went to, a roller hockey vacation Bible school. That is an interesting compound noun that would be all one word in German. (laughs) Well, okay. So in the afternoons, we play roller hockey. And in the mornings, there would be a skit and a worship service. But the skit was always Pilgrim's Progress. And we lived for it. They really had fun adapting Pilgrim's Progress. And some youth counselor was was not Pilgrim, Christian. So I remember that, but I really, I have only the vaguest impression of Pilgrim's Progress. Wow. So playing Pilgrim's Progress is a real thing that kids do. And it really is as much fun as this novel makes it sound. Well, we were not playing Pilgrim's Progress. They were reenacting it for us. That's a critical distinction, but it was fun. It was like an adaptation, a 2000s adaptation for kids. And we ate it up and played roller hockey. I was also, I definitely, I had a, I was six and I had a big crush on my counselor. And there's a moment that's just seared in my brain. I was clinging to him on the last day of camp and my mom had to physically pry me off of him. Oh my God. <laughs> and then he looked at, and then this counselor looked at my mom and said, thank you, which wow, that's a wound that I carry with me from being sick. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> Harsh, man. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Pilgrim's Progress, Christianity, get into it. Joe is certainly trying her best to do that. Okay. And then the last sort of boy moment is that they're all singing around the piano and Joe wandered through the airs at her own sweet will, always coming out at the wrong place with a croak or a waver that spoiled the most pensive tune. And under this, in my notes, I wrote, I know I was raised a girl, so I should know this, but voice breaking isn't as much a thing for girls, is it? So I thought that was an interesting moment that that Joe has this kind of male puberty moment. So that is a rare example of something that is extremely not autobiographical because I believe we learned at Orchard House that Louisa May Alcott had a beautiful singing voice, right? She loved to sing. She loved to sing, yeah. You really are reminded visiting Orchard House that there just wasn't a lot to do back in those (laughs) days. Not a ton to pass the time. There was nothing on TV. There wasn't much on Netflix back then. And so one of the hobbies people often had was music. Mm -hmm. So all of the Alcott sisters could play the piano, but some of them were better at it than others. And it sounds like Lou preferred to sing than to play the piano. Yeah, everyone in the Alcott family just loved to sit around and sing. We are going to get into, at some point, May Alcott's Hot Girl Summer, but There's one night during her hot girl summer when this boy she's been sort of courting, we learn that he sings to her Land of the Leal three times. In one night. (laughs) In one night. On loop over and over again. Like an iPod. (laughs) You were charmed by me singing Land of the Leal one time. (laughs) How about three times? And she loves it. She said she had a very pleasant evening. (laughs) This is all to say that I think it's fun that she did not give this trait of hers to Joe because, well, maybe because it's a little too feminine to have a beautiful singing voice. Not that I would know anything about this, personally. (laughs) But she had the option to give Joe a beautiful singing voice and she denied Joe this option. She gave Joe a creaky boy voice cracking bad voice just to hammer the point home. Love that. Love that for her. I mean, one of the big things for me about going on testosterone is I used to be able to do a pretty good Joanna Newsom impression, no longer in my register. I can do, I can now do a pretty good impression of the guy from the national. If anyone cares to hear that sound off in the comments. <laughs> I'd like to hear it, Peyton. Will like, you, you like, like to hear it? No? Yeah. Can you, I can don't you, know. So, what's you, the you national of the oh, I don't know. Sorry. I don't actually, I don't actually know land of the leal. Never mind. Well, maybe I'll save my The National Impression for next week. If we get a thousand subscribers, Peyton will delight us with his impression of the guy from something called The National. Do you not listen to The National? Peyton, you know I don't listen to music. Oh, yeah. So what else is there to get? I mean, we have talked so much about Joe. There's literally three other sisters. and We've just been like, Joe, 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 Joe. You know, what is the title of this podcast again? Joe's Boys. We are here for Joe. <laughs> we are here for Joe. You know, future chapters will give us so much sister content to discuss. I have a lot of thoughts about Beth that I look forward yeah. to getting into in future episodes. 
Yeah. And I mean, we both came away from our Boston trip standing Amy, standing May Alcott, who like really, I mean, the real life May Alcott was like a remarkable human being, incredibly talented. And we both really enjoyed learning about her and getting to know her and just getting to (laughs) read the journal of a hot girl. (laughs) She's like, oh, wow, like Lou got a book deal. That's great for her. I wish I had talent for anything but flirting. (laughs) I love May and I will never unsee how what a hatchet job on May the character of Amy is. We can talk a lot about that in the future. What's that about? Best Amy's off the dome. Florence Pugh. Great. We will talk so much about this later. Let's not get yeah. into eight now. This is okay. a Joe episode. <laughs> this is a Joe joint. Okay. Yeah. I guess last thoughts on Joe or other thoughts on gender and little women. Well, I think we have more than made the case that Louisa May Alcott chose to open this novel by hitting this note so hard over and over again. It really sets up Joe's entire arc. It sets up Joe's entire character. And I look forward to continuing to trace this arc. I think it will continue to be as heavy-handed, really, as it was in chapter one. And it's special. It's special to look at now from the distance of the year 2021 and to see something so recognizable so long ago. Yeah, it's special. And it's also accelerating my descent into madness, (laughs) which you'll have a front row seat to in this podcast. So that's very exciting and special. Thank you for joining us, Frankie. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Oh, I guess they should find me on Twitter. I'm at Frankie underscore J. I'm Frankie J, though, on Twitter. It's Frankie underscore J-A-Y underscore T-H-O. Just fucking Google Frankie Thomas Twitter. I'll come up. I have a bunch of viral tweets. You've probably seen them. One of them is about Sweeney Todd. Another one is a whole thread about little women. Yeah, that's right. That was that you popped off with that thread. You should also, while you're Googling Frankie Thomas, you should check out Frankie's novella, The Showrunner. I just read it two nights ago and it like hit me like a baseball bat again. Oh, so. thanks, man. I was 23. <laughs> you sure were, dude. And I'm on Twitter at Peytonology, P-E-Y-T-O-N-ology. You can visit my website at peytonthomas.ca for links to my work. And my book is Both Sides Now, which is available wherever fine books are sold. Please buy it from your local indie bookseller rather than the bad site. That's my only request. And yeah, thank you for joining us. Any parting words for our guests and listeners? To any remaining Turks who are listening in, I know you're still here. Get the fuck out. Yeah. This is not for you. Dave Chappelle, if you're out there, fuck off. <laughs> and to any other Joe's boys in the audience, we, yeah. see, we love you and we look forward to meeting you and doing more episodes for you. All right. Love you guys. Thank you so much. And talk to you next week when we will be reading the Merry Christmas chapter, which was banned upon release. Dot, dot, dot. Okay. All right.